Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. This week, um, it's just so funny this would land in my radar because it's not what we're talking about this morning. But this week, just a fascinating statement that I, I hope to get to teach out perhaps after, after Easter sometime. But the seraphim those creatures that you hear in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, those incredible beings that are singing holy, holy, holy. You've heard the teaching here um, long ago and and many times regarding worship in the heavenlies and how I personally hold the suspicion, if you will, or the what if, that I don't think they are saying holy, holy, holy anymore. There's no evidence of that after Revelation 4. In fact, they enter in and join in the song with the with the elders and the living and, the, and all, all of heaven, saying worthy. And please hear me, holy is an observation. In the book of James, he would write that even the demons know that the Lord is one, and they got to say that. But worthy, see the song changes in Revelation 5. said so they sang a new song. And it says at the end of that, that these seraphim joined in. So here's the thing, if they say it forever, they at least stop long enough to join in that song. Everybody got me? Well, here's what I believe. I believe ever since the Garden of Eden, when these seraphim were posted there to keep mankind essentially from destroying themselves, that you see them in the same way. Keep reading the Bible. You should read it. It's great stuff, okay? You see them in the same fashion when the temple is built and this holy place that I was talking about, the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. All of these pictures are great. There's this place called, uh, there's this item called the Ark of the Covenant on the top of this box, if you will. They call that the mercy seat, and God's presence would sit just above it, the mercy seat, just out on the edges of the box. Listen closely, because this is, I'm going to, some way, someday, I'm going to get to hire an animator, and we'll, we'll see this in, in pictures. But get this, on the edges and the corners of the box are these seraphim, these same creatures. So they're standing once again as sort of divine administrators of justice between people and the presence of God and a place of mercy. As you get to Revelation chapter 4, watch this. Revelation chapter 4 sees what Isaiah saw 700 years earlier. Isaiah was stepped into another realm, and as he saw the throne of God, he's describing, he said, just out from him, he saw the seraphim swirling all around, under and over and around this throne. And he said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips. But he said, they touched my lips and atoned me. Go forward 700 years. John the Revelator has a vision and he sees worship in the heavenlies. Watch this. But as he does, he sees these seraphim there and then he sees the elders. He starts with chapter 5. He says, but then one appeared, the Lamb of God, bearing the marks of having been freshly slain. And it says, he steps in between that this is the throne of God and the seraphim out. He steps in between the seraphim. I believe at that moment that I can defend that God looks over at the seraphim and says, boys, your job is done. Your job is done. Because now they have to pass by mercy to get to me. I believe that at the east of Eden, please hear me, this gripped me to the point of tears. Late night, I've been gone all week doing another week of disaster relief in the Bahamas. And late night, the first or second night, I mean just to the point of tears. And I'm just going to say this and leave it hanging there. That when God first posted these seraphim at the east of Eden, listen, he did it to preserve 
a place of mercy that would be filled by the Son of God after the cross. And he, there's this message that says, hold that spot, the answer's coming. Whew. And I believe after the cross, the Son of God steps in there and the song changes. Because the highest words of acclamation before a God who is holy and complete, lacking nothing, is not holy, holy, holy. I believe a God who is both holy and both love is not looking for the highest song of praise as an observation or an affirmation of who he is. Matter of fact, read Isaiah 6. It doesn't even say they were saying it to him. It says they each called out to the other. Holy, holy. I've said this before. How many know we got a problem? If we serve a God who sits on a throne, who creates beings to remind him nonstop of how holy he is. Come on. You're holy, God. I mean, way holy. You're like the holy meister. Holy, holy, holy ozo. Do you hope? Anybody get what I'm talking about? Come on, come on. Said so they each call out to That's all they can say. But watch what happens. The, 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 the song, the, the, the word worthy is a statement of testimony. Once you touch holy, okay, here's the throne, here's the lamb. I come by way of the lamb of God who offers mercy and opens the door and I can reach by him and touch holy. Previously, if I touched it, it would kill me. But now as I come by the way of confessing Jesus Christ as my Savior and, and accepting his death on the cross for me, I come by the way of the Savior who now stands as the intermediary. And when I reach to, to touch holy, Holy Ghost does one of two things. It kills sin or it redeems confession. It redeems. And so the new song starts. You're worthy. I have been made worthy because you're worthy. You see, holy, listen to me, is an observation. Worthy is a testimony. That you're the source of my worth. Worthy is not an economic term that means I owe you something. It's a declaration that says you're the source of all worth. We really don't have a good English word for it. You're the source of all worth. Lord, if I have any worth, it's because of you. And so that song changes. And Revelation 12 says accordingly, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and a word of observation. It doesn't say that. It says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and a word of testimony. The testimony is... I don't care what life brings. I don't care how many failures I may have had. I am not made worthy by any works I may do. I'm made worthy by the blood of the Lamb, and I just invite that over my life, and I call on mercy to grant me access to holy one more time, that I might receive grace that I need to push back against the sin that makes me fail. It is the most beautiful picture from front to back. You need to hear that this morning. Okay? So look at the person next to you and say, I'm sure he was talking to you. I didn't need that. Go ahead and tell him. Now, we've got to find some way to get into this study that seems to have been pushed off week after week after week. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, Monday night prayers, we pray toward the cross. First week we prayed the emphasis and for reasons that we, we discussed about that on Easter Sunday that the sense and residue of betrayal would be broken on the hearts of people uh, throughout uh, Sevier County. Last Monday night, um, the Last Supper was indeed the Last Supper and pointed back to the Passover. That it's the place where things stop that have been 
and things start that never were. That's what happened when they first celebrated it in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, when they partook of the Passover meal as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and moving to a place of promise at that moment. It was their last day of ever being a slave to Egypt, and it was the first day of starting a new journey to promise. And in like fashion, when Jesus sits 1,850 years later, he sits with his disciples on that last day, on that last supper, and he says, now let's partake of this together, because I want you to know that what we're doing here tonight points towards something else. He says, because the bread is my body, I am the lamb, and the blood is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. And so he's saying in like fashion, that as you come to the table of the Lord, the power that things have had to dominate you and hold you in bondage, they stop. And a new day under a new covenant starts. So we're praying on Easter Sunday that people will walk into churches and say, and even if they can't even say it or know it, that there would be things that have held them captive, that they will find exposure to the power of the cross and the resurrection and whatever has held them bondage they'll find falling off and they'll begin to perceive a new place of promise. So I'm excited about all of that. I said to you as I continue to get older and older, Sunday mornings for me are like more of gathering in God's living room than they are opportunities for, for lectures. And due to the wonderful unlisted spiritual gift of attention deficit disorder, God empowers me to bring you many wonderful things that you might otherwise not consider. So you can say thank you, Jesus, and at that, or not, okay? Get your Bibles, phones, pads, whatever you have, and turn to Mark chapter 4. That's largely where we're going to hang out. Today I'm going to start, and I'm going to try to finish this in four weeks. We'll see if we can. But I've gotten questions, because I've asked you to read Mark 4 every day since uh, last Sunday, a week ago. I said, just hang out in Mark 4, and I've gotten more questions about verse 12. We're going to read the entire segment, but let me tell you quickly how we got there. A few weeks ago, <clears throat> and by the way, the point of this is, the, is that the Bible represents the Holy Spirit of God as the Spirit of truth. The Bible speaks of the Word of God as the Word of truth. Around here for more than a decade... We have studied that the concept of the word truth in the original language means unhidden. And how many know that's a wonderful provision? Listen to me. In the closing moments in the Garden of Eden, mankind was deceived, they were afraid, and so they hid from God. The condition that exists in this culture, the world we're in, is that we hide from each other and we hide from God. So it makes perfect sense then as the book of John would open and describing the arrival of Jesus Christ. Listen. He said, we beheld the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and what? Say it loudly. Truth. Go. Truth. One, two, three. Truth. Truth. It means un we beheld the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and unhiddenness. And what Jesus does, and we've had fun playing with it in all 21 chapters of John, Right up to the closing chapter in addressing Peter's failure, he goes and unhides people from God and God from people. Not exposes, he unhides and reveals the opportunity. In John chapter 4, it's no accident that what I believe is the chapter that becomes a handbook on worship, he describes worship in these terms. 
those who worship will worship in spirit and in what? Unhiddenness. Why is that? Because God says, all I've ever tried to do is to get us back to the relationship that I initially established. And that is, I want to walk with you. I don't want you to hide from me. Beloved, I just have too many things to tell you this morning. Would you pray with me about Easter? Because I'm going I'm to talk about the three gardens. That's the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, and then the garden tomb where he was resurrected. And a, a simple, I want you to begin to pray about this. Write it in your notes, put it in front of you for prayer time. That um, in, in the Garden of Eden, mankind hides and God comes and says, where are you? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, deeply sorrowful, only hours away from being crucified. Jesus, in the flesh of mankind, comes and looks back at God and says, God, where are you? And then on resurrection morning, of course, that question is answered. As Mary comes to the tomb, sees the angels and says, what have you done with him? Where is God? And unbeknownst to Mary, a risen and crucified Savior, who she mistakenly perceived as the gardener, steps up and says, Mary. And so the answer to people who will come here on Easter, the number one, you know the number one question asked by people who don't know Christ is, where is God? Hopefully we're going to answer that question. God, where are you? And that Jesus has stepped in to the very flesh and asked the same question in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then three days later or four, he becomes the answer where he steps up to that same question. What have you done with God? And he says, Mary, not only am I here, but I know your name. And see, I'm going to just tell everybody there. Not only is he closer than you think, but he knows your name. And we're going to drive that home. Right now, let's take a 30-second pause. Lift up that hand of oath and covenant. Father, we pray that this room would be filled with people that would come to understand on that day that the God, they've wondered if you know their affairs, you're still asking the question that you asked at Eden, where are you? And we're asking the question back, God, where are you? And is there another option out there? But you answered it through the cross and the resurrection. I'm right here and I know your name. I pray that people would know that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, think of today's teaching as sort of a bulletin that you get that we really don't hand out. So you've got a lot of bullet points you can take home. Look at the person in next, in next to you and say, um, you get to, come on, say this. Say, you get to decide which of the 15 sermons you want to take home. Wow, see, it's American church. You get choices here. You can ignore five of them and take one with you, okay? Where we started a couple weeks ago was with um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And you may recall, you can see it online or listen to it, either one. But it says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training, for training in righteousness. I love this verse of scripture and breaking it down and teaching on it. But we focused on that first word, inspired, which means God breathed. The word of God is God breathed. And I believe that statement says that the Word of God is this living, pulsating, viable thing that when we open the pages and we, we, we literally can breathe in God's presence. And I had 
my, my printed Bible, which I, I brought out with me this morning. I've been using a computer for so long, and I opened it, and I modeled before you what I've literally done on hundreds of occasions. And when I'm struggling with a passage of Scripture that I'm not quite getting, or I'm sensing there's something more, to literally press, press it to my face. Just You say, is that magic? No, it's not. I'm not creating a new doctrine of breathing pages, okay? What I am saying is as I come with that word of God and I say, Father, as I press my faith to it, I want to breathe in where you breathe out. And so the picture of resuscitation, of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, of course, the picture of that points all the way back to mankind being created when inanimate clay and dirt was formed by the Father and he bent down, if you will, pressed his lips against dirt, breathed into it, and it became a living soul. On the night of the resurrection in John chapter 20, a risen Savior comes into the room and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Old Testament and the New, that wonderful word in the Old Testament, ruach, is the breath of God that also means equally the Spirit of God. So I want us to get in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this beautiful poetry where he says the, the, all the word, God's word, all scripture is God breathed. It's the breath of God. Be refreshed by that. How can you go a day without a breath? You can't. And what if you could get the breath of eternity? Do you know the number of times that I've stood and prayed backstage, side stage, in my office and say, Father, I just want to breathe in where you're breathing out. And as I walk out to breathe out, as miserably as I may mess this up homiletically or communicationally, I want one thing to happen by the time people leave. Even if they can't describe it, even if they can't go away with a clever cliche or a hook or a soundbite, I want them to walk away with somehow feeling as though the breath of God has breathed straight to their soul. It's what I pray every week. It's what I pray happens every week. It's what I pray happens here today. And so we begin there. And so I found it interesting, again, that the spirit of truth and the word of truth is is described right there. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, now the word of God uh, is sharper, is is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the uh, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to focus on that first phrase, that the Word of God is living and active. Years ago, uh, I've told you and talked, and it's become part of our sort of New Hope catechism around here, that that word best would be translated lifing. It's not just living, but it has the ability to give life. It's contagious. And I've used the illustration of some sci-fi movie where, you know, they fought off aliens on the other side of the universe. They returned to the planet. The music pulsating in the background. The, these astronauts get out of the ship and said, well, how'd you do? Oh, good, we fought the monsters off. And then the camera zooms in on this little green blood from the alien that's there. And the blood starts moving, and it's crawling up the edge of his suit and walks off, and all of a sudden it gets in his ear, and he becomes, ah, a creature. I find it fascinating that Paul never watched a sci-fi flick. But he said, I want you to know after you encounter Jesus Christ and the Word of God, you become a a new creature. How many would be thrilled to be driving home and for the Word of God to so greatly impact your spouse that on the way home they begin to speak and act so differently that you looked across the car and you gazed at them as if they'd become an alien you didn't even recognize and say, who are you and what did you do with my husband? I don't hear anybody clapping or saying amen. 
Do we really believe that that's an opportunity? Do we really believe that we can have that transformative uh, encounter with the Holy Spirit? I believe that. I believe the Word is not just a static document that we consider cerebrally or intellectually. I believe it's a living element we can't run from. I pray that God, that we would receive it. But there seems to be some conditions to that. And at that point, we sort of land in this scripture. And I'm going to bypass all the other scripture that I had to reinforce this. But let's read this rather lengthy passage. And then I'm, I'm going to deal with, with one or two things and we'll say amen. Look at the person next to you and say, today we're going to study a little bit. Come on, talk to them. Okay? Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And he began to teach them again by the sea. And such a very great multitude gathered him that he got into the boat uh, in the sea and sat down. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, that's stories, and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. I love this idea of the gardener, the sower, because in my going back to the Easter story, Last year, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, something that I read to you that said she, was, she mistook him for the gardener. And I said, heaven laughed, because in fact it was true. The, the, the divine gardener had indeed come home to the garden. And, he was, and, and in this picture, Jesus is seen as the sower, if you will, and the word of God is the seed, as we're about to see. Okay? It said, uh, some good seed fell beside the road, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. We've already seen two. One, it fell by the side, other on shallow soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root or depth, it withered away. Number three, and other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Number four, other seeds fell into good soil, and they grew up and increased. They yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please get that phrase, because it's going to come up again at the end of this passage. Now, verse 10 is, is so wonderful. Verses 10 and 11 are liberating for me. Here we go. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, that's his disciples, came to him and began asking about the parables, and he was saying to them, now what, by his answer you learn what they were asking. Hey, we didn't understand what you said. And he says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who outside get everything in parables, in order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. First thing, I'll just say one passing thing. It relieved my heart this past week, or actually as I began preparing for it two weeks ago, I laughed out loud to find the number of times uh, that, that Jesus would preach something and his disciples came to him and said, dude, we didn't have a clue what you just said. And Jesus said, what's wrong with you? I must admit, there have been a few occasions through the years, 40 years of ministry, where I've had people come and say, I, I, I didn't get that. Right here, I just learned the problem's not mine, it's your spiritual perception. Okay, moving right along. <clears throat> It is a joke. Um, my wife once said to me, she said, if people will just wait for the last six or seven minutes, if they can survive that long, it usually comes together. So hang on, okay? Now, um, 
He says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom. Now here comes verse 12. This is the one I get questions about, that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. There's two verses of Scripture that are critical to understand the whole story, or two passage segments. One is verse 12, and the last segment, let me see if I can get there, is verse 21 through 25. Look ahead there with me, and that, this is where we're going to spend our time, and then hopefully we can zoom through this in the remaining three or four weeks, okay? And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it, or under a bed? It is, not, it is, is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? The, the thing here is saying that the poetry is this, is that the Word of God has not been given so that the truth of it could not be seen or that it would fail to illumine the lives of those. He said it is meant to be for its pur- for, to, to illuminate the situation. And I want you to understand what's being said here. And then he goes on to say, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it should come to light. And he's saying there that unlike the Pharisees and the enlightened, uh, if you will, of the, of the day, I'm not telling you these things in really obtuse, difficult ways so that you can't see. And watch this. We're going to go back to verse 12, and you're going to say, well, that doesn't sound right because verse 12 says that, that while seeing they can't see and hearing they can't hear, we're going to come to that. But this verse really reinforces that un- the understanding we're going to get in a moment. He says, it's not God's will to present things in such a fashion that you couldn't see them. And he says, well, wait. And you could say, well, wait a minute. Verse 12 just said that. We're going to get to that. Okay? He says, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to by your standard of measure. It shall be measured to you, and more shall be given to you besides. For whoever has to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. That verse there is one of five times that that phrase is used. It is entirely foreign to our understanding. We live in a different mindset and a different culture. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Him who has not, it's going to be taken away. And him who has, a more be given. Sounds like he got a real bad dose of capitalism. Anybody understand what I'm saying? We're going to get some clarity on that and why this ancient proverb is so very powerful because it addresses the intent of the listener. And we're going to come to that. Now let's go back. If, you, if we can get these two segments, then the remaining principles just leap off the page at us and we can move more quickly. Back to verse 12. In order that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. You see that all in capital letters? Okay, up here. Um, what that, that indicates often <clears throat> a quote from an Old Testament passage. So the question then is, let's go back to that Old Testament passage. That Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 6. I just mentioned chapter 6 a moment ago. God is speaking this to Isaiah in the midst of that heavenly vision and encounter. And, you know, and he says, I need somebody to go. And Isaiah says, I'm going to go. I'm willing to go. And so then he gets the instructions from God. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, watch this. Now look at the screen closely. Because the translation, he said, watch. Do you see what's in front of the word go? See the quotation marks? That in grammar, as you know, I'm I'm not being elementary or pedantic or whatever here. 
That means someone's talking. He's about to quote somebody. Watch. And he said, he is who? God. And he said, go and tell this people, colon. Now, you see in front of keep? God said, I want you to go and say. Everybody see? Come on, look, 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 look. This is Bible study. I told you it would be that today. But it's critical to understand the mission of Isaiah that would then fall on the shoulders of Christ. Otherwise, that verse 12 from Mark seems so unfair. Well, wait a minute. You mean he preached so that they would still be blind and then God could come and flick them off the edge of the universe? That's not the heart of God. Otherwise, watch, watch, watch. The verse we just read would seem to be wrong. The verse we read that says nothing's meant to be put under a a bushel where you can't see. Everything's meant to be clear. You could read that passage of Scripture as I got emails and text messages and say, well, that doesn't seem to be what all is going on because verse 12 says, here's what verse 12 says. We don't get the same quotation marks in, in, in the, uh, the, the reference in the New Testament. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the... He said those two things. Keep on... Go back to that last screen, okay? He, this is what he says I want you to say. God is saying, go say this. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep, keep on looking, but do not understand. There's the see other little inset single quote mark. Then it goes on from there. Next next verse, please, Manda. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Leave that verse there. Let me tell you what God's saying, and it really, for me, is most simply understood in this fashion. As a parent, especially as a parent of the southeastern United States, there is sort of this colloquial correction that we have. And it comes this way. You're usually driving in a car. Your children are in the back seat. And they're doing things you clearly can't address at the time because you're driving and you run off the road. By the time children's, children are four minutes old, they begin to understand this dynamic. That a mere two to three feet from you, they can get away with murder and there's nothing you can do about it at the moment. Children are entirely evil in that fashion. They understand the back seat to hold this invisible barrier, a force field, through which you cannot reach and it's impenetrable, some sort of safety for the moment, at least until the car stops. They're doing stuff. They're giggling, throwing stuff. She's on my side of the seat. He's doing this. Stop that. And see, this is one of those moments. I've had many of these moments, but this is just one where all of a sudden you look in the mirror or you risk running off the road for one second. You look around and point and you say, keep it up. Keep it up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Is there, come on. Is there any parent here besides me that have done that? Okay. Only half of you. The rest of you are liars. You say, I'm not going to admit to being that linguistically abusive to one of my children. That's threatening. Beloved, sometimes that's the only place to go. You turn around. Keep it up. Keep it up. I was a cop for four years, and I found out I got to practice that parental line before I ever had a child. You know, you'd be working with someone at a situation, like a bar fight or something like that, and you'd be trying to save them from themselves, and they're running their mouth and say, would you just be quiet? Or you go to a place where there's a domestic situation, sincerely, and it's going, and we say, would you just stop? And the person's going off, and please stop, and please stop. And then they have to look and say, okay, you keep that up, and you're going to talk yourself into jail. You say, well... What's this about? 
God said to Isaiah, go and warn the people the path they're on in worshiping idols, in pursuing other gods, in the violation and crashing of the priesthood, which was addressed in the minor prophets. He says, I want you to go and say this to them. They're going down a wrong path. Go and say these words. Go back to the previous screen. This is what he told him to say. Okay? Previous screen, please, Amanda. Previous verse. Okay? Keep on looking. Keep on listening, but don't perceive. You're not hearing me. And his suggestion is this is intentional on their part. Keep on listening, but don't, per- uh, but, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but not understanding. And the result will be this. Watch. Hearts will be, go to the next screen, please. That hearts will be, uh, that will be insensitive, ears dull, eyes dim. There's three things that are stated there. Watch this. But it, please look this way. This is Bible study. But it just jumps out, and we find sort of where we are at different times. Why is it important? I believe those three things are articulated when Jesus said, here's the examples. For the ears that are, uh, excuse me, the insensitive, calloused hearts where the word of God is thrown and it just bounces off carelessly. He says, let me tell you about seed that's sown. And when he goes to explain it in the second half of the chapter, watch what he says three times. These are those. He assigns intent. He said, Tom, don't be one of those who when the word of God is given, that because you have such an attitude and a callous attitude about something, that the opportunity for the word of God to be implanted is thrown and it just bounces off your heart on the side of the road. And as he goes on to explain, and the devil snatches it away before it can bear any fruit. Watch. The second one is, and their eyes dim. They can't see. He says, or, you know, they got an idea of what's out there. He says, shallow soil is the second one. And then finally, uh, or hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and be healed. And then he says, it's planted among weeds where it's choked out. We're going to look at that in the next few weeks. But what's going on here is not Jesus saying, I've come to communicate to you in such a complex fashion so that you won't get it, and then I finally get the right and the permission to just flick you off the edge of the planet. Did you know that's the way that many people feel about God? That's the way that culture sort of talks about God? That He's really just this careless deity that at best is looking for an opportunity to flick me off the edge of the universe, and then they begin to look at the church of Jesus Christ in that way. But beloved, that is not the truth. That is not the heart of God. In that same passage, just a few verses later, we've already, we've already addressed it, where Jesus said that the Word of God is living and active. It's lifing. It's pulsating with life. That the Word of God gets on us and gets in us and it begins to bring a life that we didn't see coming. But here's the deal. If we allow it just to fall by the road, can you give me five more minutes? I don't see how much is left. Okay, watch. Scenario one is by the wayside. When, it came, when he describes this in verse 15, watch. He begins to tell them. He said, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Now, if I were to invent some pictures of a callous heart, I always start with one, unforgiveness. It creates a callousness around our heart. We study here that unforgiveness 
shuts the voice of mercy. Biblical evidence, it shuts the voice of mercy off from my life. It seems as though that for many of us, we hold it and we look around and somehow people around us are getting it and it's bearing fruit, but for me, it just bounces off my heart. Where are you today? What is there that's created a callousness about God's word? Listen to me. And it seems as though before it can bear fruit, it bears fruit in the lives of other people. Have you stopped and said, Father, I hear your warning this morning that I continue to perpetuate, I'm just picking one again, this place of unforgiveness that's rendered my heart callous and insensitive and unable to hear the voice of mercy and unable to receive the word of God. It is number one on the list. Lord, I, I repent of that and I release that so that the Word of God may find root and place in my soul and soil of my heart to bear fruit. Where is it? Can we ask ourselves that question today? Where is it where the Word of God might be bouncing off my heart and falling in a place where it seems as though the devil snatches it away? Now I'm just going to push the pause button on the teaching. Okay, so what are the takeaways today? Number one, verse 12, is not a declaration of God looking for the opportunity to beat you up. It is not that. He is quoting the prophet, and he told the prophet, please go and give them the strongest paternal warning I can give them. You continue to do this stuff, and if you keep on doing it, here is where you're going to result. Listen to me. That is absolute truth of sin that Hebrews talks about, uh, that we begin to drift, that we get, end up with a hardened heart, hardened against God. We keep doing it again and again and again. As you sit here right now, and I'm, I, I, I would turn and say, Father, please speak to those places where there's a recurrent act on my part, a recurrent thing that I'm doing that really rejects your word, and just allows it to bounce off, and and the devil seems to come and grab it before it can even gain any root. Where is that? Where is that? Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, as I just push the pause button right here, a couple things that I pray for. For someone that's sitting here that says it feels like I have become, I don't know, that God's after me or something. Lord, you're you're never after us to beat us up. That your discipline and your righteous rod of the shepherd is always meant to drive us back into the fold, back into a place of blessing, always. Father, I pray you'd communicate to whomever may be here that it is not the heart of God to simply flex some cosmic muscle and prove yourself to be anything. You are the I am. Nothing to prove. I pray that for someone that may be carrying something in their heart that they've carried for decades, perhaps unforgiveness toward a spouse, a a parent, a person of the past. And Lord, there seems to be this callousness and penetrability of their heart and soul, an absence of the suppleness. And and even they've had people say to them, you seem so hard. You seem so hard. 
God, may you do what you also promised in later chapters of the book of Isaiah, that you would renew the dry, hot, desolate places, incapable of supporting life, growth, or vegetation. That you would renew the ruined places. Father, may people in this room know that you reach with the heart of a healing father that says, I know the pain you walked through that created that dry patch where nothing can grow, but I want to rain on it today. I don't want to judge you and leave you there. I want to rain on it, but I'm going to shout in the strongest terms. Keep on doing that. If you keep on doing that, you will never receive what I have intended for you. In the strongest fashion, speak those words. The gardener has come home. I love you and I praise you. Do that right now. Look again at the Word of God. I'm going to pause. Watch this. I'm going to go back. I almost forgot to come back to those verses that I told you. There's two or three things that are said there. Watch this. Um, At the end of Mark, we're going to go back. And this really speaks to what I just prayed for. Verse 21. And he was saying to them, I already talked about that, a lamp not hidden under the the lampstand. Verse 22, nothing is hidden. Here we go, verse 23. If any man, look closely at this. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? Now he's going to tell you how to receive it. Then in verse 24, he tells you what. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. This is a very practical and functional thing. How many know that what we listen to mostly comes right out of here? So by implication, what you're listening to is what you're saying. But I want to ask you also, what, who do you hang out with practically? What reinforces you? What minimal encouragers are you getting all week long? I'll even ask this. What music are you listening to? Oh, you're going to get on that hobby horse. All secular music is from hell. I'm not on a hobby horse. I'm just asking you a question. What do you fill your mind with? Because it's what? Verse 23 said how. We're going to come back to that. Verse 24 says, what? Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. Please get this. Everyone look at me. Jesus is saying, what you listen to determines the measure of effect of the Word of God. What you listen to. If you spend all your time listening to every other counsel, other than word-based counsel of brothers and sisters, if you spend all your time listening to other stuff, if you spend all your time listening to Fox News or MSNBC, or writing on Facebook, or whatever, and you're not spending any time with the Word of God or with brothers and sisters who may reinforce the Word of God, what are you listening to? Because he says, what determines the measure? Here we go. It shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. And here it comes, verse 24. For whoever has... Let's just stop right there. Go back to verse 23. If any man has ears to hear... Read that aloud with me. I promise you I'm going to quit right after this. Read, okay? Look at the screen. Read it. Ready? If any man has ears to hear, go straight to verse 25. For whoever has, okay, I'm going to wait for the answer in our classroom. Whoever has what? You got it. Most often we read right by this and treat these verses as little ancillary proverbs. Whoever has ears to hear. For whoever has ears to hear, To him shall more be given. Whoever does not have ears to hear, even what he has shall be taken away from him. How many know that's not a judgment? That's a natural outcome. If what you're listening to 
is not that stuff, then he says that becomes the standard of measure because you don't have ears for the right thing. You're listening to the wrong stuff. What do you fill your mind and heart with? Let me go ahead and do this. I haven't done this in a long time. What do you watch on TV? Oh, you're going to go to that? I thought this church wasn't one of those religious churches. It's not a religious church. It's just a church. It's just asking a question. What are you listening to? What do you spend all your time with? Who do you hang out with? Some people are going to be surprised. And I'm going to watch this prayer. Father, I pray that one person here goes out to work this week, and this negative person that's been around them for days, weeks, months, or years, they're going to have some sort of conversation and say, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. I pray that that happened. I pray that that happened. Father, for one person this week, one person this week, watch this one. Here's, this one's going to get us in trouble. I pray, Father, that however, everybody say gently. Okay, because I'm about to pray for husbands and wives. So say that again, gently. Okay. The Father, however, gently this week that one spouse may say to another that thing they talk about every week that they've talked about for years, that they're going to look back and say, you know what? We really don't need to listen to that anymore. Ooh, got quiet. We really don't need to listen to that anymore. Because that's the standard of measure of the Word of God bursting forth in our home. Listen, there are just some things you need to stop talking about except to God. Wait, let me say that. Rewind. There are some things you just need to stop talking about except to God. Hold on. Now I get to be a member of the audience and say, Whoa, preacher, preach that. Preach that. Why am I not getting that? See, want to know why? Because we enjoy it. The Word of God says those words taste good in our mouth. Read Proverbs say, hmm. I got to talk about how somebody done me wrong song one more time. Mm. Father, I pray that you turn it sour in their mouth. I pray that they have a taste for nothing but the Word of God. Taste and see that the Lord and His Word are good in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Say amen. Look at the person next to you and say, "Mm, I hope he stops right now because I'm sure he's going to get you next. Go ahead and tell him that. Okay? Let's stand up. Come on. We're going to push the pause button. Stand up. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.